Hey, this is the NATO Sessions. I'm comedian NATO Green. This is my podcast. The NATO Sessions is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. I'm sorry it's been a while. I'm back with a new episode. I'm happy to share with you. Uh, this episode is with my guest, Shanaka Hodge. Shanaka is a writer and spoken word performer and activist uh, and Oaklander. Um, I met Shanaka because we were in a rap video together. Uh, we were both in a video uh, for the uh, group Atmosphere. Uh, the song was called Kanye West. It was a very clever ploy by Atmosphere to uh, have people find their video. Uh, Shinaka was uh, a gun-toting uh, lady, I don't know, criminal, outlaw, uh, with um, in a sort of Bonnie and Clyde type of situation, and I was basically a shopkeep getting held up at gunpoint, so that was a fun video shoot. Um, and uh, I met her, and we talked about, oh, yeah, we should do podcasts, and then it took us a long time to get around to doing it. But we did it, and I sat down and talked to her in the uh, garden of Cafe International in the Lower Hate. Uh, we had a great chat uh, about poetry and performance and activism and Oakland and gentrification and rapping and whatnot, and, uh, yeah, it was fun. So... Uh, here's here's a, a cut of uh, another video of her. She first came to I first became aware of her. Uh, she was on a video uh, with Watsky called "Kill a Hipster, Save Your Hood." Uh, so here is a cut of Shanaka on the "Kill a Hipster" video, and then we'll go right into the interview. So check out the NATO sessions with Shanaka Hodge. Walking like you own with your whole posse. Dance around the issue, riding an OPA. But you get broke for that French shit, so cassé. And you can put that in your lit magazine, Tumblr blow. Eat it with the bacon off your farm, fresh hoes. If it like kombucha, hope your last meal suits you. Do good or tights, commuters on bikes. Brutus 20 somethings with the coolest delight. You be loving on my city like Johns. Rubbing on her titties, leaving money in palms. I'm rumbling guts and only hunger so much. Must be redundantly blunted and lured. What's it like to grow up in Oakland? <laughs> Can we narrow the question a little? What was it like to grow up in Oakland? Uh, beautiful, trying, tragic, triumphant, um, disastrous, miraculous. Oh, well, uh, let me... So I have, you know, uh, it it means a specific set of things to me to be from San Francisco mm-hmm. and have lived here my whole life. And, uh, you know, and I was just talking, and I was just talking to my, a friend of mine and said that like when I went to visit San Francisco in the nineties, now I can go to Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and and my friend who was from Oakland was mm-hmm. like, dude, if you want to visit San Francisco in 2012, you can go to Oakland. Right, that's uh, true. So, like, what's your just on a day to day basis? What's your balance of like fury and heartbreak about what's happening in Oakland? Like fury to heartbreak ratio, probably like eighty twenty. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I'm more angry than I'm sad. It's probably a great way to describe my life condition. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, 
I live in LA half of the time. So pretty much every time I come home, Oakland is different. I'm gone. I split the week in half. So four days there, three days here or vice versa. And every time I come home, I feel displaced or more and more like an outsider. Where do these condos come from? <laughs> yeah. where which what, There's bocce ball inside this bar. Right. But there's like, there's the this new plank place. Have you heard of it? It's like a, it's like, it's in the old Barnes and Nobles in Jack London. And mm-hmm. it's like. Outdoor lawn bowling, indoor actual bowling. There's a 45-minute wait to get in. Seems cool. I've tried twice now. And to me, it's absurd that like, I can't find parking in downtown Oakland. And when I finally find parking, I can't get into something in Jack London Square. Right, it's, right. Like, it's just beyond me. It's, it's like, I think that's maybe, maybe it's 80% fury, 10% heartbreak, and just 10% disbelief. Confusion. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I had a moment... Where, like, when I was in high school, I used to go to shows at the Omni, mm-hmm. and where someone invited me to, like, a Skype, a live Skype conversation <laughs> between uh, Ai Weiwei and Julian Assange at that spot. Oh, wow. And I was like, I can't. It's too much. I can't it's think about that. <laughs> <Demasiado>, homie. <laughs> um, and so, what's your, like, what neighborhood did you grow up in in Oakland? I grew up in a bunch of different neighborhoods. Uh, I say West Oakland a lot, sort of my shorthand. My dad has a house there and is still there. My mom's house is in the Sequoia Hills, so not too far from Skyline Boulevard. Um, but they didn't move into either of those houses until I was eight or nine. So I lived in, we lived in deep East Oakland. I lived at 89th and Holly for a bit. We lived at East 17th Street right in the Fruitvale. I lived in North Oakland when I came back from school. Uh, you're hard par- hard pressed to find a neighborhood in Oakland and I haven't lived in at some point. So, and uh, what, um, like when you when you come back ha- having been away, what is where do you have to go eat first? Oof, I love Zachary's. I'm a Zachary's kind of girl. Um, but I'm it's generally like an El Farolito uh-huh. kind of stop. And there's I know there's some in the city, but mine is mine is on International at sure. 36th. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so. Yeah. Yeah, and then the Sinaloa truck. It's probably like a roundabout of Mexican spots first, right? And then Burma Superstar, uh-huh. which I know is newbie, but you know. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, so and um, and what what were you up to in high school? In high school, I was angsty, of course, because I was female and teenaged. I have daughters. Tell me about <laughs> it. I'm not prepared. Oh, we're crazy. We're crazy basically from 12 until further notice. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so just prepare for it. I was a bit of a loner when I first got to Berkeley Hello. High. When when uh, when my, like I, I have six-year-old twin daughters wow. and people are always like, brace yourself, man. When they hit puberty, it's going to be, you're in for a world of hurt. And, and the thing I always love to say is like, oh, I'm not worried about that because I'm a good parent. And then I watch other parents of daughters like <laughs> momentarily go blind with rage until they realize they're fucking Yeah. <laughs> well, good parents and bad parents, the kids are going to go crazy. And even if you're the best, like 12-year-old girls are mean to each other. So even if you're awesome at home, once they get to school, we're going to be horrible to each other. And then more crazy ensues. So, okay, so Berkeley High. Berkeley High. Uh, I was one of those kids on an inter-district transfer, so took the bus super early and wrote poems on the bus. Was a Youth Speaks kid, so performed poetry and taught poetry. I was a gymnast when I started high school. Uh, I worked out at an all-black gym that was non-competitive, so basically got in, stretched, taught toddlers how to stretch, and I tumbled a little bit. 
Um, I was still in the West African dance scene at the time, so I was dancing a bunch both at school with Naomi Washington and then at the Alice Arts, which is now called the Malanga. Uh, hung out with a bunch of guys. I was super tomboy. Sweatshirts and baggy pants every day. What else was high school like? I was in cast, so I worked out, and my teachers were like weather underground folks. Uh, uh-huh. Rick Ayers and his brother Bill Ayers, who lived in Chicago, but he'd come in and teach. Uh, I worked at Common Ground, which was a sustainability and eco-justice program as well. So, uh, Creek Restoration. I was a real, it was a really Berkeley, ex- you know, high school experience. And, uh, and, and then how did you get connected to You Speaks? You Speaks came in and did a school visit, a site visit in my classroom first semester of freshman year. So um, they met me just as I was sort of at the height of my depression and the height of my angst is at 14, 15, some family stuff, some basic teenage stuff. And um, they came in, they did a writing workshop. Everyone wrote for seven minutes. They said, who wants to share? I got up and shared. The whole classroom clapped and I was hooked. It was like, it was a very easy one-to-one. Like, I have a problem. I wrote about it. I got affirmation. I'll write another. So. And what, do, what was the poem? Uh, some I don't know. I don't, it didn't become part of my repertoire or anything. It was uh, probably an event about stuff that was going on at home. And uh, and so, what was? Did you consider other things as the thing to lock into? I thought about theater. I'd done some. I guess. Oh wow! My very first job in high school was working. Remember when KRON was an NBC affiliate? Yeah. Yeah, I worked for KRON's. Saturday morning teen news program called First Cut as a field reporter. Um, so I thought maybe broadcast journalism. I thought theater. But I was, I'm was i painfully uncoordinated, so sports were never going to be an option. Ever. The gymnastics was because I was so uncoordinated, they put me into it so I could learn to fall more gracefully. So yeah, it was pretty much, it was going to be performance one way or the other. And what did your parents do? Uh, my mom is a techie. My stepdad is a techie. Uh, my mom did marketing. So they the devil. <laughs> <laughs> they're like they're pre all that. They were, you know, they were. My mom was one of the first black execs in Silicon Valley when they were trying to figure things out. We rode the first boom and lost our shirts, and well, they lost their shirts in the first go round, and then came back again. So ninety nine two thousand that first yeah year. yeah yeah. Uh, my dad's a lawyer by trade and fell into nonprofit work. Um, so he helped run Freedom Schools, which is a program here, a summer and after school program here. He managed a couple million dollars of, the, of Oakland's after school budget for um, youth development and youth programming. He's a minister and musician, politician. He sat on Oakland School Board for two terms, and the first term was when I was in high school. Um, so we both did a bunch of political organizing around Prop 21 and Prop 209, Prop 187. So that was sort of dad's wheelhouse. And his wife at the time was... Uh, she, or community organizer as well, and she sits on Oakland School Board now. Um, so, what's your what's uh, uh, that's, uh, what's your recollection of the Prop Twenty One campaign? Man, if I'm being fair, it was kind of where the party was at. I mean, I remember like an anti Prop Twenty One rally at La Pena Cultural Center, as headlined by Company of Profits, which is like uh, all the homies now still Rico Pabon. Um, and I remember. Like being four, 15, 16 and feeling like no, no celebration could happen unless I was doing some sort of political organizing as well. Um, like wanting to find that balance and like only wanting to party with the people who were down to work 
as well. And also that was sort of like the cool 20-somethings at the time were, were of that same ilk. So uh, all my friends in high school were like, Destiny Arts, and they did political dance and political art, and all the poets were, you know, like they would have me there at all the rallies to perform a poem about Prop 21 or Prop 209 or 187. So it was sort of how, how I built community in the face of the ridiculous legislature and legislation. And so the... So at the during the Prop Twenty One campaign, which was I want to say two thousand. Two thousand, yeah. Came the, the election was two thousand. The campaign, I like earlier on, like eighteen months out, twelve to eighteen months out. And uh, and it it sort of happened like there was the, there was sort of all the the critical resistance stuff was getting underway. Yeah. And uh, and it was also when Jerry Brown was running for mayor for mayor of Oakland, and right. he was sort of in alignment with. The anti-Prop 21 folks, anti-Prop 209. He was running on this strong, strong mayor campaign as a, like the people's mayor. So we got duped. Uh, uh. <laughs> note to self. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so what I like, what I was doing at that point mm-hmm. was um, like I was involved. I had spent my whole adult life being involved in the labor movement, mm-hmm. and so I and some of the other labor activists in our 20s in the Bay did a whole push to organize unions to come out in solidarity with the young people that Mm -hmm. were organizing against Prop 21. So, like, we did, you know, when the California Federation of Labor took a, was going to have their endorsement vote uh, at their convention at the Marriott in Mm -hmm. downtown Oakland, um, we, like, you know, they were going to pass it, but we wanted to sort of, like, drive that there was an opportunity to connect movements Mm -hmm. in a different way. You know, that, that after like the WTO protests in Seattle, labor was thinking about young people. And so we were like, this is, this is where it's happening mm-hmm. right now. So uh, we did a bunch of stuff around that. What was, um, it? you know, it, it seemed to like, there was a whole buzz of activity that came out of that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of organizations that got yeah. either started or built up. Um, the thing not being like, being on the union side of it and not in the trenches of that stuff. Mm-hmm. This what I'm, the question I was going to lead up to is like, it uh, it did feel like, you know, a, the where the party was at. Mm-hmm. Like like every Prop Twenty One, you know, rally. Like there was music and performance. Mm-hmm. And it was rad, mm-hmm. and I couldn't tell, like, how much. Th- you know what the what the relationship was between the response to the culture and the response mm-hmm. to the politics. You know mm-hmm. what I mean, and like, uh, and whether <clears throat> in the in the high schools in particular, you know, where people were trying to push in the wake of that, like how how successful people felt it was to build more sustained organizing or activity mm-hmm. off of some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Go. There's no question yet. What's the answer? What happened? <laughs> what happened? Uh, yeah, I mean, or you know, what, what, how, uh, what do you feel like came out of hmm. uh, out of the organizing? Uh, I think a, a new cohort of leadership. I think that's probably the most tangible. So, I remember like Californians for Justice being around at that onset. Youth Together having like. Their outposts at Berkeley High, at Oakland Tech, at Skyline. And it's sort of hard to separate these folks in my memory of who's older and younger now. But I would say there are 25-year-olds who are on campus with 16-year-olds doing that organizing work. And so a lot of those folks who were 25 at the time are now 
my best friends and that I don't I don't think of them as separate. But at the time, I guess they were doing some sort of mentorship at a bunch of different high schools. There were um, music organizing groups, literary organizing groups, and video production. And I feel like a, a class of um, practitioners was trained sort of starting in 2000. And those folks now are like the Davin Anthony Thompsons, a.k.a. Dudat. Like those folks are now the people who are running these organizations. So these organizations are all hitting their 15 to 20 year mark. And the young people that they served are, have all moved into leadership positions, or at least some of the young people they served are, are moving into leadership positions um, or greater leadership positions now. So sort of like all the folks that I respect best for their work started that work. Right. You know. Do you... This is going to sound like a weird question. Do you still feel like a young person? No. Uh, <laughs> yes and no. Yes and no. Like, I'm shocked every day when I wake up and I look in the mirror and I'm not my six-year-old self. Like, right, right. every single day I wake up, I'm flabbergasted. But, yeah, I turned 30 this year and I think I have, I have, a sibling, I have, a, I have seven siblings. The youngest is six. And then the next youngest is 20. Um, and so... Yeah, I feel old because the six-year-old is like, what do, you, what, what do you mean I can't look at the picture? Like, what do you mean that we haven't developed a photograph yet? Like, what do you mean I have to wait? Right. And then my 20-year-old sister, I have a very distinct memory of her at age six saying, what do you mean you remember life before the internet? Like, come on, it's, that's, that's insanity. So, yeah, I feel old every day. I feel old every day. That's interesting. It's, I mean, in, in uh, like, I had all these, you know, movement mentors mm-hmm. when I was growing up who I who are now in their you know 60s and 70s that I'm still connected to and uh and but like at a certain point like it was you know again in the in the union context it was like a like a like a shock the first time I realized that they were like lawyers who were getting paid $500 an hour mm. who were taking notes on things that I said. Oh, you know wow. what I mean? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know. <laughs> what I say has weight and value. <laughs> I'm not just a kid mouthing off anymore. <laughs> um, so what, uh, so I want to, what, what was your, uh, how did things unfold for you with You Speaks? You know, like put in your notes later that I paused for a second and furrowed my brow. Um, how did things unfold for me with you, Speaks? I started as a 14 year old, did their did the program, competed in the slam the first year, got blown out the water, uh, went home and cried. It's part of the You Speaks life cycle. Went home and cried and decided, well, why do I want to write? Is it for celebration or is it because I actually have a story to tell? Um, and then decided, actually, my work is probably more to get other folks involved and have their stories told. So I was like, I was that girl at Berkeley High. I was constantly recruiting people. We had a writing workshop after school on Wednesdays. It was church for me. I didn't miss it. Like, if someone promised me they would come, I wouldn't speak to them the next day if they missed it. It was a big deal. And I pulled a bunch of folks in. So Nico Carey, Nyalia Dorador, Rafael Casal, a bunch of folks who are now off making, I think, uh, she, Hollis was on the other side of the bay, but you look at that list now, and you know Rafa's huge success. Hollis put out a whole album with Macklemore and was nominated for a Grammy last year. So, a bunch of those folks were sort of in the midst, and my I, I just saw my job as being like the ultimate recruiter. Um, my big brother Jason Mateo was in You Speaks with me, and he's a couple years older. And the big thing that we did first was organize Brave New Voices, the International Teen Poetry Slam and Festival. Uh, and we had, you know, in the year two thousand. We had, I want to say, 16 teams here at the Regency. Um, and that was the first time I felt like I planned something big. 
that it went off not without a hitch, but like I that was the first time I realized like I could get people from all over in a room to come and do what I said I wanted them to do and also to hear their own stories and tell their own stuff. So I think that was the start of my my life as an event coordinator and event producer. And how old are you at this point? Um at this point I'm sixteen. Uh okay, two questions. One is uh why are you like that? Why am I like, like this? Like you like the way that you described yourself as being the kind of person who has this impulse to get people involved and what like where does that come from? Definitely my dad, who's also he's this way and he's you know my brothers and sisters laugh that they don't want to walk down Lakeshore Avenue with me and my dad because we'll never get anywhere. Like we'll we'll start one place and end up further away. <laughs> um He's that way. His mom, sort of that way. Um, his dad was a choir director in Arkansas. Um, so that's part of it. And my mom's mom is AFL-CIO, SEIU, um, in Kankakee, Illinois, in Chicago. So also just that kind of personality. So I come by it really honestly. And um, I'm the oldest of seven, or oldest of eight. I was oldest of seven up until the, the baby was born. So I kind of just feel like it's not a, it's not a function until we have critical mass. And critical mass is minimum six people. So I think... Uh, yeah, I don't know how to cook for fewer than six. I don't, I, don't, I don't like to entertain for fewer than six. And so I think that's sort of, I, I like a warm room. I like, I like lots of eyes. I hate performing for small rooms. I'd much rather perform for 40,000 than, than 40. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 don't think, I don't think it works until there's, there's lots of people. Maybe that's dangerous, and I like the danger of it. So the other, I mean, the, the other question is, that I think I feel like a lot of people who sustain some life of uh, engagement mm-hmm. that there's that there's some story like what you just described about being 16 and trying something mm-hmm. and having it be a wild success mm-hmm. that like cracks open this sense of possibility that you have as a young person they're mm-hmm. like oh, it's going to be super easy to do all this shit. And like, <laughs> all we have to do is go do this another 50 times and yeah. then we'll, you we'll know, we'll win. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and like, you, like to have, that there's this sort of giddiness of that comes in at that, mm-hmm. with those kinds of achievements at that age that doesn't, I feel like doesn't ever go away. Yeah. Um, no matter, like even once you get the shit kicked out of you, yeah. in lo- you know what I mean? There's a rush. There's a rush. And I think that, that people ask me, you know, when's the next piece coming out? And I'm like, I just organized this event. And they're like, no, but art. And I think, like, you know, my art is actually curation of space and getting the right people into the room. And I think, you know, I, you know, I'm one of these Bay Area kids. It's like had lots of exposure to all sorts of, you know, spiritual teachings and practices and every sort of reading I've ever had, palm reading, tarot, Babalao, everyone has said, your religion is work. Your religion is doing the thing. So I, it didn't even feel like an easy thing in 2000. Like we had to lick envelopes and put, you know, put letters in the envelopes, lick them, stamp them, send them. Um, and I have a really distinct memory of sitting on James Cass, the executive director of You Speaks floor uh, in his house in the inner sunset and starting at 3 p.m. and ending at 3 a.m. and sending out the mailers for this big poetry slam we were trying to do. And, and now feeling, it would just be the blast text. Exactly. Like, <laughs> just one Instagram post would, would reach far more than that. those mailings now. Um, but uh, I remember feeling camaraderie in the work. I remember feeling like supported. I remember feeling... At the end of the whole event, once it come, you know, come to pass the sort of euphoric or release, you're like, okay, a job well done, a show well done. I love, I love breaking down a house more so than I love setting it up, and I love, you know, finding remnants of audiences 
you know, what they were eating and what they were scribbling on their paper. I, I love to like the after effects of, of the show. And I think that's, that's an addiction for me. And so I think I started that addiction in the year 2000 and uh, it hasn't let go. It hasn't let go yet. I'm going to guess that there aren't a lot of white guys who are artists who say that what motivates them is the opportunity to work with other people and bring other people's <laughs> voices forward. I don't know. I think George Watsky would say exactly that. That. Yeah. But I he's mean, not a lot of white guys. He's not a lot of white guys. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think like, uh, certainly, I mean, part of what got me hooked on being a comedian was mm-hmm. getting, was being around other comedians mm-hmm. and like that feeling like I had come home to this community. Uh, in a way, you know, it was like the first time in my life that I didn't feel crazy all the mm-hmm. time was when I was became a comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's and it's interesting, you know, to see. I mean, it's, uh, there's sort of that legendary quote about Duke Ellington about you know my instrument is the band. Mm-hmm. Like it's to see the collaboration as a artistic medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you speaks do things to? cultivate that Hmm. or is that is that pure hodge it's not pure hodge and it's not pure you speaks uh yes you speaks did things to cultivate that and again it was all you know it's all sort of intertwined that's where the party was too so i was a nerd i was an outcast i was a weirdo and i was contemplating suicide if i'm being completely honest at 14 and you speaks was like actually no there's a shit ton of kids around who are feeling the same way and um we have poetry slams on Wednesday nights and poetry slams on Saturdays and you're going to get paid 50 bucks a gig. And, you know, I, I it was the first time I felt like in the same way in community and not like a crazy person. And I felt I owed it. And I think part of me feeling like I owe it is my family's way of being. And part of it was a you speaks. I know. I think I'm more my family. So I don't think everyone in you speaks felt like they owed as much back to the organization, but I certainly did. What? No worries. Why were you uh, thinking about suicide? Because I felt alone. Because I felt uh, without my power. Um, longer story, not all of which will end up on, uh, on tape, but uh, it was a tough time at home. Mm, not not for no fault of my parents, but just a tough time. And... Uh, I didn't see a way around it. I didn't see a way outside of it or through it. Uh, I had a, a shitty time in middle school. I was the object of lots of bullying. We didn't have cyber at the time, but um, bullying would be a loose term for what it was. I was pretty, I don't know, I was a school slut, even though I wasn't active at all. And I was, uh, I was also like, the head nerd, so a combination of the two, and so relentlessly bullied by pretty much everyone. And by the time I got to Berkeley High, I just felt like, what's the point? Like, no one will ever get me, no one will ever understand me. Um, and slut shaming was another thing that wasn't invented yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, this is going to sound an incredibly stupid question, but what do you like about poetry and spoken word? Hmm. And and what's behind the question is, uh, for me, like, I have been to spoken word performances. I go to a fair number of readings. Mm-hmm. And as a comedian, like, I, it's this is my own limitation. Mm-hmm. But, like, if there aren't jokes, I don't know what I'm looking at. Oh, Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, like the sound's good, I guess. You know? Yeah. 
I mean, I think like most poets or most spoken word artists, we I don't like spoken word in poetry until it's really good. So I like I like the moment of surprise. I like feel I like seeing someone use a device that I know well in a way that is unconventional. I love the amazing turn of phrase, and I you know you got to wait through a lot of muck to get to anything good, like in any art form. And um, so I don't love all of it. I, I love, and that's I pro- kind of why I don't go to adult spoken word events. I love seeing a young person who's struggling the way I was, find community or find solace or find stability in their own writing. I love watching young people have um, revelations about themselves. And the writing's not always good and the performance's not always good while that happens, but that's that's what I get off on. Um, and then, you know, in the way of poetry, I love I love the mundane unfolding into something miraculous or phenomenal. I love the way Terrence Hayes makes a poem out of basketball or a poem out of walking to the store to get a soda pop. I love um, Patricia Smith's use of rhythm in her performance and and on page. Denise Smith, I I love how he can make a poem about fellatio feel like church, you know. Um, Depends on the fellatio. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, that's, I like, I like how sensory it is, you know, one way or the other. You know, so, uh, I love Bamuti's get down you know I love his artistic practice and I think his is similar to mine I remember hearing him read poetry as a teenager and you know he was tap dancing and doing poems at the same time and I've never seen that before and I haven't seen it since you know um Saul was everyone's favorite favorite and I just love I love the weight like I used to listen to his voice his poems to put me to sleep like I loved I just love the the rocking of it the motion of it so that's what I listen for now in some ways and then I love, love to see people who aren't mimicking that and they're doing something entirely different so I don't know I love it when it's good and I hate it when it's bad and I think that's like anything anyone loves to do right and uh, so you wrote a play called Chasing Meserly sure did I'm that, holding my hand up there uh, that uh, re- was put on this spring yes and, or this past spring, and now uh, it was a uh, that dealt generally thematically with the phenomenon of a police getting away with killing a black dude. Yeah. And now we're in the midst of a worldwide movement <laughs> responding to that. Uh, so uh, go go. <laughs> so so you did it right. It's it's all you right. Uh, do you get do you get ki- residuals uh, on the on the movement? <laughs> I don't get residual on the movement. No kickback. Um, that play, man. I feel like what we did. So it ran for six weeks. We did four weeks at Intersection for the Arts, and then two weeks at Z Space. And I wrote the we wrote the grant to do it. Joan, Joan Osado and uh, of Living Word Project and Sean San Jose of Intersection wrote the grant. We got it. Um, 18 months out. So basically, like, they're like, what do you want to write about next? I'd finished the the, se- the prequel to, to Chasing Messily, Mirrors in Every Corner, and they're like, all right, let's go. What happens next? And I was like, you know, what's on my mind is this this Oscar Grant killing. I don't know what the play is yet, but, like, that should be the next project. So in a lot of ways, by the time we got to the, you know, when I got to, the like, the final drafts and we were ready to put show up, Fruitvale Station had already come out. I'd become really good friends with Ryan Coogler, the writer-director of Fruitvale Station. Um, I had seen... I saw the movie at the Sundance premiere, so months before anyone else saw it, before the, before the Zimmerman verdict hit, all of that. So I think both with, with Ryan and I, like, 
there's some serendipity is not the right word because it did um it connotes more joy than I feel, but much more joy than I feel. But it felt like the right, I think we have to write another version. I think I have to write another version of Chasing Messerly as it tours and as it goes out into the world. But I think for the Bay Area, and I've been thinking about this kind of critically and seriously for the last few weeks, I think that we did some of the spiritual work that needed to happen in order for those of us who felt angry to be able to put some language to it, for those of us who felt disheartened to be able to power through. Um, I, I intentionally wrote in all the names of the folks I saw at the core, at the helm of organizing into the piece. Um, I intentionally wrote place into the piece so that folks could sort of tie in or, or sink into the play in the same way that I felt. And I, th- I don't know, as, a, as an artist, you never feel like you're, you've done it well. I, I never feel like I've done it well. I always see so much more room for improvement. So the first day of any show, I'm always like a weepy, sobby, gross, like snotty mess. Like, no, we can't do a show. No, I've made a mistake. No, people are coming tonight. We have to shut it down. And then night two was pretty just, it was just kind of a bad show. It just happens. So the third night kind of like sacked up and got, got ready. And it actually like, it was, um, it was healing for me. I think for the members of the play and I think for the members of the audience. And then the rest of the run, we had lots of different nights. We had one night where like they hit a funny stride in the show and it was like, this was after we moved to Z space, but um, it was a hilarious show. And it's what I aim for in my writing. It's probably what you aim for in, in your work as well. But like, if I can make people laugh as they're crying for real, I feel like I've done my job and we hit it. But that was at the second to last night of the run. So that's like, okay, that's not great writing. It's okay writing and great performance and some X effect of the, the audience being ready to laugh that day. So I think over the six weeks we, I say, I'll say, I think over the six weeks we had a, a range of emotions, but I think we did sort of an exorcism um, of this, of this um, not Oscar's ghost at all, but of, of some collective dismay. And I think it heartened us in the Bay Area to be able to go into the next few months in a different kind of way. So you look at the folks who've been organizing Black Lives Matter, who did key organizing in Ferguson, um, the folks I've been organizing with Blackout for Human Rights. A lot of those folks came to see the show and a lot of those folks had responses and conversation with me afterwards. And I'm not saying it propelled their work they, or, or uh, incited their work, but maybe propelled them to do their work in a lot of ways or at least propelled the conversation. So I think the Bay actually continues to set the mode for um, ways of protesting, ways of organizing, ways of affecting change. And my hope, if it's not too self-aggrandizing, is that that Chasing Lee added some healthy fuel to that fire. Um, and I think going forward, I have to write a different play. I don't, it doesn't sit the same way and it won't, it won't be the same thing in the light of, you know, there's nothing in the play about Michael Brown. There's nothing in the play about Eric Garner. And they're, they're sort of in it because we're talking about premature death. We're talking about black lives not mattering to police officers, but... Um, I think this play is much bigger than I th- originally thought. So second draft is coming and it'll, it'll go up in New York um, in 2016 with Hip Hop Theater Festival. So I feel like it'll be a very different show. I might even change the name of it. It'll, it'll be a very different piece. It's, um, you know, my, uh, I was, I was t- t- did an interview with a reporter today about something else and, and they were like, reporters are always asking me about, you know, is it, can you joke about, this or that horrible mm-hmm. thing that happened. I was like, that's all I joke yeah. about, man. Uh, and that, like, 
the you know for me like the conversation the or the convergence of suffering and stupidity mm. is like that's <laughs> that's where I am prolific mm. um, and you know and so it's sort of it but it makes like that you know that 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 these uh, murders happen or these people get away with it and then and people are like are you gonna write about you know Zimmerman mm-hmm. are you gonna write about Michael Brown are you gonna write about Eric Garner, it's sort of like, you know, it feels trivializing of those things to take out the specificity of mm-hmm. it and be like, and sort of take the same joke and be like, well, here's my, you know, mm-hmm. Trayvon joke that's mm-hmm. now about Eric, Eric Garner. Garner. Yeah. Um, but all like in a way that also captures the f- that it's we're between regularly scheduled. Yeah. Uh, abuses. It'd be interesting to have that joke just set up the same way three times on the set, right? And then just you know, like it'd get sadder and sadder as you went. You, you'd, you'd lose the last, but uh, yeah, I you know that's I feel like a lot of my act ends up being digging myself into a hole and getting out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Sounds like my life plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one of the things that was interesting to me about the play was like the one of the things that you know. Okay, a couple of things. Uh, Good. <laughs> a lot of things. How was it for you? That what in talking about this stuff for me on stage as a comic in San Francisco that is currently six percent black and dropping. Mm-hmm. Most people in San Francisco ha- don't know any black people, have no frame of reference about black people, aren't th- trying to think about it. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, it's different when it's a play where nobody who's going to come into the door of that mm-hmm. play doesn't know what they're walking into, mm-hmm. but it's like just all of the stuff, you know, I mean, I feel like in San Francisco, I mean, the, the joke that I made is that like after Obama and maybe Oprah, mm. there's like a steep drop off in what anybody knows about black people. Lil most, B. Pe- most people. Yeah. Obama, but, Oprah, Lil B. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> Jay-Z sometimes, yeah. you know, uh, but it's sort of, so there's just like, there's not, there's just a delay of like, and what was that? Again? Oh mm. yeah. You know, right. Uh, so what was what was it like doing the play in San Francisco? Did you think about doing it in Oakland? What was your experience of dealing with the audiences here? Yeah, I mean, so like I said, this is a sequel to the, the other play, and we, we there's not a lot of theaters in Oakland. Flight Deck just opened. Flight Deck, Flight Club, I always get it confused. One's a sneaker store in New York, and the other's a, a, a playhouse in Oakland. Whatever. Flight, whatever. Just opened. And uh, Laney College, and that's kind of it. You can After that, you can move to a, a high school theater. Those are our options. Um, Laney's kind of big for for the size. I think we actually will end up doing a run there. Um, but my options are limited. So, I, yeah, I'd love to do theater in Oakland. And it's sort of a catch-22. I'm, I'm a playwright in residence with the San Francisco uh, play, SF Playwrights and um, Foundation. And you were talking about it. Like, what kind of support do you need? I was like, we need Oakland playwrights need to be able to apply for San Francisco playwriting grants because you can't afford to live in San Francisco if you're a playwright and you can't put up a show in Oakland if you're a playwright. So there's sort of this, you know, there's this back and forth. So I'd, I'd love to do it elsewhere. And that's always sort of the dilemma of like, how do I write a show about blackness in a place that's mostly white? Our audiences at Intersection and at Z Space were diverse in the, the truest sense of the word. So very diverse age-wise for a theater show. High school students, some people asked if they brought, if they could bring their kids, and some people did, even though I warned them against it. And then all the way up to, you know, octogenarians, um, racially very diverse, diverse in terms of sexual orientation or, and or preference. So 
but I think that's a I think that speaks to the the strength of the the cast and the crew and our network and and the way we we go out. That said, there were some audiences, some nights where the audiences were very white, and it's an uncomfortable show, and I'm an uncomfortable playwright, especially if you're like, if it's an all white room or if you're the only white person in the room. Um, and I think that great, you know, I did it. <laughs> you know, if, if I if I managed to get people in the room thinking about things they weren't thinking about before, no matter their creed, I've done a good job. And if I've managed to make people who are otherwise be very comfortable waking up, getting on the Google bus, going to program, coming back on the Google bus and having a tapa, a dinner of tapas, then like if they came to my show and they left thinking about it and they didn't leave at the at the act break, then I think that, you know, that's a success. I can... I could get all these people in my living room in Oakland and we can have this conversation on our own anytime. So I think a good play is one that brings these disparate audiences together. Uh, there's, there was, uh, there's, there was, there was and continues to be so much pain around all that, all that stuff. I mean, <laughs> that specific case and, you know, when, during Occupy Oakland, the day of the general, uh, the uh, you know, around, there was, I don't think it was, the general, it wasn't during the general strike because the police left. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so it was this sort of amazing moment mm-hmm. of the general strike where it seemed like people in Oakland uh, like were breathing differently because mm-hmm. the police went away. Yeah. Uh, but there were these moments, uh, you know, of like some of the big marches and stuff mm-hmm. where I like just people screaming at police. Like mm-hmm. there was so much that it sort of gave uh, an outlet to so much uh, pent-up frustration and rage mm-hmm. and hurt. What is the role and power of art in helping people heal and process and understand mm. uh, the world? Why is it why is it not enough to give them the right TED Talk or pamphlet or <laughs> uh, <laughs> sad uh, Pacifica Radio documentary? Uh I think the job of the artist and the and the and the role of art is to provide. I was talking to a friend yesterday. I almost busted myself out on on film or on tape right now. I was talking to someone I um, I just met yesterday, but I'm the mother of someone about whom I care very much. And are, are we are we on the fence about whether or not you're friends yet? We're definitely friends. We're on the fence about other things, okay. but uh, I met this person's mom. Uh, and she's an artist and we were talking about what art actually is and for her I think we actually came to the same conclusion though she'll correct me if I got it wrong I'm sure but that for me the art isn't the poem and the art isn't the rap or the painting Um, the art is the space between me and the audience right so if I write it in my room and I'm the Emily Dickinson poet I just put it in my my trunk and they find it 20 years later. I don't think that's art. It's not art until it gets removed from the case or removed from the room and someone can respond to it. And I think that the role of art in terms of political organizing is to allow that, that breath to have all nodes of uh, human emotion. So like the good art will like provide laughter in the, in the despair or um, challenge in the happiness or, um, the in-between space allows us to to actually feel as humans do. Um, I think other other than that, we're in routine or we're in silo. Um, so I, yeah, I think the role of, of of 
arts and good art. I think good art is political, and I think the role of good art is to um, remind us of our humanity. It's kind of trite, but I, I actually believe that. <laughs> uh, it works for me. <laughs> it, I mean, it's it's yeah, uh, and it's interesting, you know, that the I. I mean, for me, part of the part of the reason that I can't not be a comic, this thing about about it not feeling crazy, is like that. There's sort of there's a way that like if I can figure out how to make an audience laugh, I'm not by myself in my head, mm-hmm. uh, and that you know that that's the that's the that's the whole thing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of it, and I think there's a moment where like. I write some poem at 16, I forget about it. Ten years later, someone else picks up some old copy of a magazine, reads through it, finds the, the line in the poem, I have no idea what I'm writing about, and finds me and says, wow, this line changed my outlook on something. Like, that's what I live for. That's the moment. And that's the moment that makes me feel like, one, I'm not crazy, but two, I have no idea what the work's going to do. You know, like, I, my, my job is to write it and not to understand it entirely even, but just to channel sometimes. And to trust that it'll have meaning, it'll have a million different meanings over the course of the life of the the, the poem or the piece of art or the, or the screenplay, you know. And to not, I know that makes me feel like less of a crazy person. Like maybe no one will get it today. Maybe I don't get it today. Still got fifteen years, twenty years, thirty years to figure out what it what it means and what it does. So the the last thing I wanted to ask you about was um, uh, that there was that controversy that was about you that did not involve you about that gentrification zombie video yeah uh, greatest video ever best piece of art ever because it pissed everybody off uh so could you tell 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 the tale so the tale begins probably before anyone knows uh in my best friend dominic vieta's house he's a uh graffiti artist and metal worker he paints signs now he goes by dom the sign painter he does great stuff check him out um and he created a t-shirt um, because his neighborhood of North Oakland was being called Timiscal for the first time. And all of the folks who were coming in were displacing us on a very day-to-day basis from our favorite places. And he got to a place where he was like, I just want to kill a hipster, save my hood. And so he wrote that on a T-shirt, kill a hipster, save your hood. And I worked with Dominic selling these T-shirts at First Fridays at um, at the Oakland, not, maybe not Oaklandish, that was probably too early for Oaklandish. Or too late for Oaklandish. But like these kinds of rigs and parties and, and shows, we'd sell these shirts. And invariably, the people who would come and buy them would be people that I would qualify and consider hipsters. And it sparked a bunch of different conversations. George Watsky saw me wearing the shirt and asked for one. Um, and then maybe six months later said, Chinook, I want to do a song with you and Boots Riley called Kill a Hipster, Save Your Hood. Will you write a rap song? And I was like, yeah, George, for sure. And then I left it alone like I do most of the time when people ask me to write rap things. It's a different story for a different day. Um, and we didn't really come back to it. And then George came back maybe another six months later. No, for real, like Boots may, may or may not do it, but I'd really love you to come in and I'll pay you $500 to write a rap verse. <laughs> I was like, that I can do. So um, I wrote a verse, we recorded it, it made it on the album. Um, and people like that song. People are into the song. Um, and so we, we did a video. And the video was aimed to be a critique of ourselves. Um, George turns into a zombie hipster in the movie um, or in the film. 
my brother Chikuti turns into a weird Michael Jackson motorcycle riding version of himself. Um, and there are hipsters of all races in that video. You can't really tell because they're all zombies, but folks sort of saw it as like a white black polarity or binary. And it actually wasn't that or not, not what we we're aiming for at all. Um, and yeah, it's a gory video. We use implements of art to kill the zombies the whole way through, which I think people forget. So my brother uses his drumsticks. I use pencils and Watsky use a Dominic who's in the video as, for a cameo. The original creator of the phrase uses vinyl to chop off zombie heads and George uses, I think, just his fists and also the rap song that he's rapping. Um, we had a fog machine. The fog machine caught on fire. So like, there was like all sorts of danger built in. We shot the whole thing in LA, um, which is interesting because none of us are from there. And so we're gentrifiers in Lamert Park and we reference Brooklyn where we both lived, uh, where I've lived and George Watsky's visited and I feel like a gentrifier there. So I don't feel like my hands are clean at all. And I think that's what the video is about. My only quibble with it was the refrain, which was, uh, you know, the wrote my congressman did no good, talked to the pastor did no good. And so I would have put more steps between that and yeah. kill a zombie. You know, the, the refrain uh, I didn't write, that's George's, George's artistic license. I actually uh, accepted Christ into my life before the video came out. Um, and after I'd written the song. And so, like, Red Scripture did no good actually doesn't ring true for me at all. I know my congressman personally. You know, Barbara Lee's come to dinner at our house. So, like, those are George's words. And I feel right. like as an artist and as, a, in collaboration, not everything is going to ring true for either artist, you know. And he wrote, somebody, Jackson wrote the treatment for the video, the director. So lots of people had their take on what gentrification is and, and the ways to solve it. And I think, I think we had a huge conversation, everyone on cast, everyone on set, everyone who came out to, to volunteer to be a zombie that day. We had this conversation. We had the conversation with the people. There was um, a, a Little League championship game going on at the park that we shot it in. And so the kids were coming out over talking, like, we just want to see the zombies are cool. Like, what's up? And the parents came over and we had a conversation, some in English, some in Spanish. And it was a mostly Latino team playing a mostly black team. So, like, we forced that conversation on the field that day, and no one will ever see that. The, the, one of the things that, that has sort of come to my attention about, about the history of the zombie myth mm -hmm. is that the, the origins and endurance, the zombie myth has always been tied up with fear of the racial other. It's hmm. uh, uh, interesting. You know, like, I've, I've uh, at one point I took a deep dive into, like, weird blogs about, you know, uh, about, the, about this stuff, but that... It, that that the you know the origins orig originally stretch back to like uh, you know Haitian voodoo mm -hmm. and not a coincidence first successful slave rebellion mm -hmm. and then but the it keeps coming up mm -hmm. throughout U.S. history like in sort of in with imagery about you know the the basically the underclass rising up mm -hmm. and so the video is super interesting to invert that yeah it's an uh, inversion of it yeah so in some ways. In some ways. I, yeah. It's interesting. I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about that. Nato Green, you're the man. <laughs> uh, I think that's a good place to stop. Nato Green, you're the man. Uh, no, thank you so much for talking to me. I've been looking forward to it since we shot that other rap video yeah. last year. So I, I did all, the, I did all the, the violent rap videos all at once. So my dad had issue with that video. Oh, really? Why? He was like, I really didn't like seeing you holding a gun. I really didn't like seeing a gun pointed at my daughter. Uh -huh. He was he wasn't with it, and so the scene that we're both in is like he's like that's that's my least favorite. The funny the funny thing about <laughs> about that video is that Pete uh, Pete Lee the director called me up and was like, hey, do you want to shoot a video? I was like, sure, man, whatever. 
like I didn't know atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew who you were, but uh, uh, and I know Pete through Boots, mm-hmm. and and so Pete was like, "Hey, do you want to do this video? Sure, whatever, man. Can you be at this place at this time? Sure." And then I got there, and he started describing what it was that he wanted me to do, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, you want me to kike it up?" <laughs> like <laughs> he was like, "Could you do it?" Like we would do a take, and he'd be like, "Could you do it a little bit more?" Like, yeah, I get I it. it you want, you're looking for the fucking full like Jewy <laughs> shopkeep. That's so funny because now I'm realizing that Boots has gotten me into both of these messes, right? So like Boots didn't write a rap verse for Killer Hipster, so I wrote a rap verse for Killer Hipster. And Boots was... So Pete called Boots to see... He wanted, um, I think, Pam to play, play the role that I did. And they were all the way at South by Southwest. And so uh, Pete asked Boots for somebody who's about the same age as Pam who would be a good pairing for Takahashi... Mm-hmm. Like a seventy-two-year-old guy who's like someone who's middle-aged who could play this role, and Boots Riley recommended me. I was twenty-nine at the time. Boots recommended me as a middle-aged lead. So, yeah. Thanks, Boots. Thanks, Boots. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you. Great to talk to you. Wonderful. Thank you. That was the NATO sessions with Shanaka Hodge. I'm NATO Green. You can follow me on Twitter at NATO Green. Uh, the NATO sessions is edited by Steve Bissinger, produced by Dan Wolf, theme music by DJ Real. Like us, share us, rate us, review us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.